over half of us are vulnerable in some shape or form, and that number is probably going up. It, w- it will be higher now than it was before the pandemic, and it will get higher again as inflation and interest rates rise. All we expected to play a role in terms of enforcing those sanctions, which is a sort of fairly naked example of you know political politics driving driving the activity of the regulator. So there's a bit of a myth inside the regulators, which you know I was part of for a long time, that actually you know you can move the goalposts to the to a better place and improve how things work generally, but but typically you end up either doing the routine stuff that you're committed to through the legislation and international agreements or you're responding to stuff that happens outside. Hi, and welcome to the Risk and Regulation Unraveled podcast of Grant Thornton. You've got uh, myself, David Murray, and my colleague, Gavin Stewart. Say hi, Gavin. Hi there. Um, and we're taking our monthly ramble through the news and events that uh, that we see in the world of financial services regulation. Although in this case, because we're recording this uh, in the third week in February, I think it's important that we recognise Gavin Stewart's birthday. Um, Gavin, I was intrigued. I thought February the 25th, it must must be some worthy international cause that's recognised every year on that day. Um, so I googled and um, apparently it's International Chocolate Covered Nut Day. I was blissfully unaware of that. I obviously did something very terrible in a previous life. No, I no, actually, I think in, I think in the in the spirit of improving the Improving the lot of the human race, chocolate-covered nuts are quite important, actually. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I will forever think of you and chocolate-covered nuts in in much the same um, much the same time. So, we oh, are going to... after the Cuban Missile Crisis, which must say something about something. <laughs> yes, well, it might well say something about some of this, the topics we're going to cover today. Actually, we've got quite a lot to get through. Um, including a couple of items that we didn't didn't manage to get to when we spoke a month ago, um, but also some events going on in the world that seem to be driving regulatory priorities or could well drive regulatory priorities, uh, which which is probably a good place to start actually with the um, cost of living, which um, it doesn't seem so very long ago we were talking about negative interest rates and the kind of regulatory challenges that might pose, and 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 now we're talking about. Um, high inflation and uh, a cost of living squeeze that is generally being acknowledged as quite to be quite significant. Um, and I know you were reflecting in one of your um, in one of your blogs about you know the, the last time we had a inflation at this level uh, back in the early nineties probably um, we didn't have a regulatory system that looked anything like what we have today. Um, and I suppose it does raise the question about what we might see from our regulators how they might respond, how they might um, assess their role, uh, what they might assess their role to be. Yes. Um, yeah, so way back in the early 90s, I was at the Bank of England supervising what were then called miscellaneous deposit takers um, with names beginning L to F, no, F to L rather. Um, and yeah, I mean, in- inflation was something that was was very much part of life and how you work things in. But, you know, there was obviously Black Wednesday when it went to 12% and almost went, interest rates went to 12% and almost went to 15. And then we pulled out of the exchange rate mechanism uh, and so on. And there was what, there was a secondary banking crisis. So, um, 
you know, people who'd remortgage their houses a second time, um, inflation rates went, and a lot of those banks went out of business, um, usually in a managed way. Uh, inflation was up, uh, mortgage rates were up, people just used to leave their houses, leave their keys, walk away from their properties because they couldn't cope. That was quite a thing. Um, and, I, you know, we're obviously not in that territory yet, but it is a long time since you know, must be back to at least the early years of the century before interest rates were um, and inflation were anything to write home about. Uh, and we're clearly in that territory now. And, and I think if you're if if you're at the sort of less prosperous prosperous end of the population, or or actually in the middle of it, then you know the it, it must feel much higher than the sort of seven or eight percent that is that is kind of being forecast to peak at. Um, and, and I think I think regulators will, you know, don't have a playbook for this anymore, really. Um, and there won't there will be hardly anyone who remembers. Uh, so so I think it's it's potentially quite bumpy. Yeah, it's um, it, it it's interesting. Obviously, we've been um, witnessing the consultation around the future regulatory framework. Um, which is obviously very significant uh, you know, for, for, the, for, for the long term. Um, and that um, included a consideration of what you know what the objectives of the regulatory system should be. It's given us, or seems to be giving us, that consultation a a, um, uh, a secondary uh, objective, regulatory objective around competition, uh, giving us a new regulatory principle around climate change. Um, it's competitiveness, so the competition's already in there, yes, but yes, they quite often get blurred in reality yeah. as well as yeah. Um, uh, you know, there's this clearly a bit strong emphasis around vulnerable customers in 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 the regulatory um, policy setting that, that we we've seen for a little while. But um, I suppose if 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 you're outside of a vulnerable customer group, I don't know, is is there, is there that much in the reg, in in the existing regulatory framework that um, that's, that's there to to help you? Well, uh, well, I think I think the first thing is that you know there's an argument that that um, you know, over half of us are vulnerable um, in some shape or form, and that number is probably going up. It, it will be higher now than it was before the pandemic, and it will get higher again as inflation and interest rates rise. So, so vulnerability is you know becomes the norm. Um, I think is is part of it. I think the other the other side of this, which I don't think has been explored enough, is that you know forbearance has a big downside. You know, ho holding off, um, calling in loans that people can't afford to pay or or equivalent doesn't often in the end do them any favours. Uh, so, you know, if for whatever reason people can't afford that exposure, then the best thing might well be, um, unless you're convinced it's temporary, um, to 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 kind of pair back. But but we're not in that. You know, we don't have that mindset at the moment, and I don't think it's not obvious that, that the FCA does. So, you know, that wasn't the emphasis all the way through the crisis. It isn't the emphasis with the vulnerable customer bit. So, um, it, it'll be really interesting to see how that how that adjusts if it does. Yes, it does, and I, I suppose it, I, I, actually, in in thinking about our podcast today, uh, the recurring theme that kept popping into my mind is is the extent to which. Um, external events, environmental events um, may end up 
driving uh, changes in regulatory priorities. I know it happens all the time, happens every year. It's just maybe this year's version of it, but to what extent does uh, does the uh, something like cost of living have the potential to um, derail the existing priorities, move around the existing priorities? I'm gonna, sorry, it's a bit of a rhetorical question because I think the answer is probably almost certainly it does. It does have that potential. Um, and I think there are a few other things going on that we'll talk about that, that equally have that potential. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think events always do ultimately drive the regulatory agenda. Um, so there's a bit of a myth inside the regulators, which you know I was part of for a long time, that actually you know you can move the goalposts to the, to a better place and improve how things work generally, but but typically you end up either doing the routine stuff that you're committed to through the legislation and international agreements, or you're responding to stuff that happens outside. Um, and I think the pandemic's been some of that. Um, obviously, what we're going to, you know, cost of living and the geopolitical stuff is all about enormously large scale, um, very different from um, either kind of specific regulatory things that go wrong or on a much bigger scale, but, but different, the financial crisis, which is partly caused by you know, regulatory failures and so on, things that happen within the system as opposed to things that happen outside it. Yes, yes, I think we're definitely looking at things now which happen are happening outside. You mentioned the international situation. I mean, just, just this week, um, the British government have taken action to uh, impose sanctions um, on uh, a number of Russian banks and uh, a number of uh, individual individuals uh, connected to the Russian regime and um, probably more to follow but but clearly um, it, it seems that the the, the regulators uh, both PRA uh, Bank of England and, and EFCA all will be expected to play a role in terms of enforcing enforcing those sanctions um, which is a sort of fairly naked example of you know political politics driving driving the activity of the regulator um, yeah, and I mean, I think that's always happened. So if you go back to the first, um, the first Iraq war, there were a whole raft of sanctions that came in there from my first experience of it. I, I, and I think you know, one of the things about it is that, that actually that's what's happening externally. I would expect that internally the FCA is asking supervisors to start probing deeper and asking more questions of firms, particularly if there's um, a material business link to um, to Russia or to Russian oligarchs. Um, to be honest, if they're not, I would expect supervisors to be doing it anyway. I, I think I think the sanctions is a is kind of a pass for them to use their discretion and to prioritize financial crime in a way that the legislation doesn't do, and in a way that it's it's hard to do internally for all the reasons we've discussed previously. But I mean, if I was a supervisor, I'd be doing, you know, I'd be digging quite hard. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if a bunch of those, if a bunch of firms went on to FCA watch lists for that sort of reason, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it feels like this is a bit of a, um, a, a, a bit of a kind of inflection point, um, which has been coming for a while, I think, but, but, you know, it's a very obvious public trigger for it, but I think there'll be, there'll be lots of people, you know, look at the Credit Suisse stuff. I mean, I know it's quite different. But the stuff that's the, the massive data leak that came out this week, no one wants to be that supervisor. 
<laughs> um, no, no. Um, so, uh, so that's we'll be setting the agenda. I agree with you. Uh, I think there will be a lot of a lot of um, questions being asked and, and reprioritization of, of different firms on, on the back of this. It's inevitable. Um, uh, all of which we haven't even mentioned, uh, you know, maybe may the most uh, intriguing, if that's the right word, um, news of the month, which is that uh, the FCA appears to be edging closer to strike action or, or, or being subject to strike action. Uh, an indicative ballot, which the leaked results suggest 87% of the, the people who voted um, voted for industrial action. But uh, nevertheless, the prospect, it appears, of, of, of strike action is, is higher than, well, I don't know, higher than I've ever. I've, I've never really considered it a possibility up, up, up to now. Um, and it seems to be obviously occurring at a time when there were already quite, quite widely reported um, difficulties at the FCA in terms of staff shortages, loss of staff. Um, uh, I know they've engaged, they've engaged a couple of external firms to try and help them clear the backlog in a couple of areas in um, SMF applications and changing changing control applications, which are, if you like, arguably some of the more mechanical uh, uh, procedural elements. Um, so, so they're already under a lot of pressure, um, and they may be edging towards strike action. Uh, what's the playbook on this, Gavin? What? Yeah, so, so you're right. I mean, it, it hasn't. This hasn't been. A, a remote the remotest of possibilities ever before this point so i think that that bears repeating again and again you know this is not a a workforce that would jump into any sort of industrial action so i mean we don't know how many people voted in the indicative no. ballot but no, frankly 87 percent of anything and i think they're moving to a formal one so you have to assume there's some kind of substance to it um it is it is slightly mind-blowing to me, I have to say, having you know, it's a real change. You know, see, senior management isn't always popular with with kind of uh, you know people, you know, people who work there, but nothing like this. Um, so something's happened. Um, there isn't a playbook. Um, there, there are a couple of things that you would you would go to to start with. So um, we had a contingency, small contingency fund during the crisis with the idea of pulling in outside help if if needed because everyone was so busy anyway so if more stuff happened but when it did we ended up just reallocating existing staff because actually it would take too long and they aren't um they aren't jobs you can necessarily jump into very quickly so that wasn't used they've got a contingency now um for for due to the pandemic um uh, it'll be interesting to see if that's rolled over in the fees consultation, which is due out shortly. Um, but I don't see that as being an easy answer. Um, the other thing is we used to do a kind of stress test where you'd ask, you know, what would you do if you had five, 10 percent less staff? Ironically, if there was a pandemic and people couldn't come into work, what would yeah. you do if you had five or 10 percent less staff? And everyone always really struggled with it because it's so hard to stop doing stuff and to formally deprioritize things. Um, so what I would expect to happen is either probably some combination, in fact, of a further slowing of the agenda and things being delayed uh, and potentially some ch formal change in risk appetite. So you have fewer firms who have named supervisors. They all go into more go into the flexible portfolio. Uh, and I think that would be really unpopular because I think it was one of the successes of the of the pandemic crisis. 
um, or you could push more um, things like push more things through the green channel, you know, applications of various sorts and authorizations. But post the LCF report, that's yeah. not a good look either. So, so I think it's a kind of rock and hard place. So you just have to kind of hope that management and staff keep talking, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I, I still, it, it still seems um, far fetched to think to think yeah. it, it might happen. Um, but uh, yeah, I, yeah I, I, we, we at least have to allow for that possibility, uh, really, for the first time. But I'm told um, Glassdoor's is a good read, for example. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yes. Uh, it's probably, how much of that probably unprintable? I would think we probably couldn't couldn't, couldn't hear that. But, but again, yet. that's that's new. That's not been that's not been a thing before. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I mean, was it back in November? The regulatory initiatives grid was last updated. So I know there were, you know, the number went up in terms of new initiatives, uh, 130 odd. I think at that at that, po at that point. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think we we discussed at the time that you know how achievable was some of this, um, some of these priorities, and everything we've talked about, not just the strike action, but the other the other pressures that are emerging. Uh, and the things the regulators ask, being asked to get involved with suggests that probably there's going to have to be some extension of timelines um, uh, on, on those initiatives, potentially quite significant time extensions. Um, talking about regulatory initiatives, though, there was, uh, I suppose, over the, last, over the last month or so, oddly, um, well, the level of policy making, at least, um, the consultation on um appointed representatives is probably the most significant well actually if you read the consultation paper and some of the statistics that they put in there around the number of complaints and the number of supervisory issues and the amount of compensation etc that emerge from ars you know you come away with the impression that you know appointed representatives may, may in some way be the the, the font of all evil <laughs> in the financial services marketplace my words not theirs suffice it to say they they, they they're obviously the fca obviously considers ars to be problematic um, and there's uh, um, therefore raising of standards that regard to principles and, and, and how they oversight their, their ARs. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a line in the consultation, I think it's made, made it into the draft guidance, in fact, um, in the rules, um, which talks about the, um, uh, the, the principal firm having systems and controls in place which allow them to oversee the ARs as if they were directly employed by the principal themselves, as if they were you know, in the same in-house, uh, in-house with the, the principal themselves, which is a, a kind of a degree of uh, proximity in, in oversight that, that would, would I, I think, make a marked difference um, for a lot of, for a lot of principals. Um, uh, won't get too much, too much into the, the rule changes. I think one of the more interesting um, elements of that consultation is it also starts a, a discussion actually says so they're not proposing rules at this point but it starts a discussion about the regulatory hosting model this is a, a business that only exists actually to have to have ars it doesn't undertake any regulated activity in its own rights because per se it, it basically is paid by ars to offer them an umbrella um and uh there's a a, a discussion within the the fca's paper on whether or not uh that they should be allowed to continue actually banning that model is is, is one of the options that are that, that, is, that is on the table um along with you know various other tweaks that would make it harder probably to uh to, to operate that operate that, that model and i don't know whether you i mean we mentioned we mentioned competition earlier 
and I know it's comp that's competition in the sort of international sense, but one of the old-fashioned aspects of competition was market entrance and allowing new 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 players to to enter enter the industry. And uh, AAR model has for a long long time been one of the ways that a lot of new entrants get into into the industry. So, um, how do you think the the FCA are going to juggle that? So I think the short answer is. Um, it's always oscillated and you know the regulators have always wanted that model you know there to be space for for that sort of that sort of growth but they've they've always found it difficult to work out how to regulate those firms so do they look at them as a federation of very small firms or individuals or do they look at them as because if you put them together some of them are some of those networks are pretty big um, yes, absolutely. Uh, but how you actually regulate them, how you supervise them effectively, has always been a bit of a conundrum. Yeah, and yeah, no, clearly there's been, well, yeah, events that have uh, triggered, you know, why, why now? Why look at appointed representatives now? Well, you know, Greensill was an appointed representative. There have been other examples of uh, some pretty big businesses operating and the under regulatory hosts, you know, actually, and the, and the AR is much bigger, much, much bigger than the, the, the principal and, and uh, some issues flowing from that. So, so yeah, it, it, the, the, the timing of this review is, is clearly being driven by some specific incidents. Um, it will be interesting to see where that, that discussion on regulatory hosting um, heads. I, I think my personal view is it's hard to imagine a situation where the regulator would ban that model entirely um, because, yeah, well, for one thing, in half of all appointed representatives are sitting under regulatory hosts, 20,000 20, ARs. So, you know, you're going to wipe out 20,000 businesses in, in one go. Mm, not so sure about that, but but some 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 narrowing of the model perhaps is, is, is a possibility. Yeah, I mean, I'm always sceptical of kind of dangerous dog act type regulation. Um, you know, I think because something bad happened doesn't necessarily mean you have to change the whole thing. Um, and, you know, we'll see. I mean, I don't think we're yet at a point where we can sort of take full stock of exactly what was going on around Green Sill and, and everything to do with it yet. But we'll see. Yeah. Um, in other news, uh, the consumer duty consultation is now, now closed. We're waiting. Uh, well, they have talked about final rules potentially. Um, July. July, yeah, yeah. So we'll, again, we we'll talk about priorities and whether some of these timelines are are achievable. Um, I think one of the most interesting contributions, and it actually was in relation to, is actually in relation to the uh, the uh, future regulatory framework. But, yes. Um, UK finance um, obviously fed back on the uh, FRF consultation, um, and uh, one of the major points they were raising was about the quality or, or concerns over the quality of the cost benefit analysis that was underpinning regulatory developments, regulatory change, and actually gave a kind of worked example of the CBA cost benefit analysis in the consumer duty, um, in the consumer duty consultation. Uh, and okay, so things that things they were majoring on, uh, you know, as weaknesses in, in the current approach are, um, you know, basically, it was, it, it, it's 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 a binary option. You're given you you do nothing or you do everything, and they don't consider the the possible. You know, what are the the individual benefits of just doing parts of the um, proposed change? 
no sensitivity analysis on the major assumptions, no international comparisons. So going back to that international competitiveness uh, point we were talking about there, you know, would 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 something about this 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 development potentially impact our international competitiveness? That's not considered. Um, and then I think there was like an overriding concern that um, you know FISMA basically gives. Uh, gives the regulator a bit of an get out of jail free card so you know if it, if it's just too hard to um quantify certain uh certain uh uh costs or benefits then they can uh uh pre the conclusions of the cost benefit analysis so you know consumer duty you've got you basically got cost to firms of something like three billion pounds and um the suggestion that you know it's not been possible to reasonably estimate the benefits um but we think they're enough so yeah so fair, some fair criticism i would say and 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 i know the the uk finance contribution suggests that other regulators actually do a better job or work to a higher standard in terms yeah. of their cost benefit analysis yes it's quite a chunky appendix they put in it's worth a read if if uh if if, if people haven't ha haven't looked at it you don't normally look you know look at those sorts of things but but this one i, I think is worth Worth it. Um, I mean, we raised a bit of an eyebrow, if that's still an acceptable term, uh, when the consultation came out. Um, even going back to the first one, when there wasn't well, CBA, there was no CBA, yes. Uh, and it is, it is one of those things where people have, um, you know, told me that they didn't think much of it, um, but, you know, which hardly ever happens. Mm. So, I. I I kind of think there's more to come on the consumer duty. It sort of goes against the grain because the FCA has hung its hat on it so much. But it, it does feel like one of those bits of regulation that that is um, less well grounded in its in its kind of detail than than many. Um, so I, I think it's kind of watch this space. I mean, I, and as you know, we I mean we've talked before about. Um, the potential difficulties of implementation and I think if I had to you know if I had to put money on something being delayed or having a very soft launch yeah. due next April I think the consumer duty because of the amount of resource it would take up from the FCA in yeah. order to do it well yes. um, including all the training of extensive training of supervisors and so on I think this I think the consumer duty would be top of my list which isn't to say they're going to delay the date um, but that actually when it comes in, it will be a pretty slow implementation by and large. Do you think that would be via, I suppose there's two routes to doing that. One is to allow some extended transitional period. Another is, is just to not really, you know, supervise yeah. it. And, and you could see both happening. So you could see firms saying, actually, you know, given the complexity of this, the short time period and so on, we're not in a position to do this by April. Um, Look at the CPA, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Um, actually, at the very least, we need longer to do it properly. And I think that that's you know that might be a half you know that might well be a decent argument. Um, but but also you know when it comes to it, I don't think the you know the the FCA cavalry necessarily be riding over that you know you know charging into the fray. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Um, uh, I imagine we will be talking a lot more about consumer duty. Uh, uh, yeah, which isn't to say it's not a big deal, but but actually it's it's a it's a much more kind of a it feels like a much more attritional um, sea change than a kind of a big bang. 
Um, in other news, um, a bit more forward looking this one. Although it's, well, I say it's forward looking. I know it's it's been long. It's been talked about year in year out, which is it's digital regulatory reporting and sort of trans. Mm. Or what's it called now? Transforming data collection, I think, is the is the is the sort of uh, the, the combined regulatory uh, initiative. Um, and we have had a, have had a bit of movement, haven't we? So they're they're now, now going to focus, as I understand, on um, commercial real estate as as a sort of. I don't know. Are we, are we into proof of concept test case? I don't know how how would we describe this because because I think there's this the take this has not moved forward very fast. I don't think. It's, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I got back to 2017 on this stuff. Um, it, I think it's beyond proof of concept. It's a proper um, it's a proper use case of can we make it work for this specific set of data, this specific set of returns. I, I quite like commercial real estate because it, you know, I, I remember back in the early 2000s when we, the FSA was worried about it, but but actually was hampered and going too far with with questioning because of you know because of the restrictions of the data that we had it was out of date it was very high level we could only collect it once a quarter or whatever um and you know so in the end we sort of backed off um or or stopped you know it was it was basically like a bit of a broken record you know we're worried about commercial real estate but actually no one else was or the firms weren't particularly, and then obviously it was part of the crisis a few years later. I don't think anything material would would have changed particularly, but 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 it, it is one of those things that um, one of those areas that actually does have relevance to both the PRA and the FCA um, and potentially to firms. So it's good to see them looking at something that is sort of properly chunky and substantive. Uh, it's still slow. Um, but, but actually, you know, you, you could at least see a sort of medium term path to a position where both the regulators thought it was important and actually the firms themselves could see that, you know, if you if you took on the upfront cost of yeah. adapting all your systems and so on, actually there's probably a medium term payback because you're not going to be producing ad hoc data and so on every five minutes. Yeah, um, I mean, that's the challenge, isn't it? That, that, yeah. that, that, that there is an investment required to get the systems yeah. to the point where this can work. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, showing some benefits, you know, within a reasonable time frame would would be a, a win for everyone. I think in terms of yeah, so it's worth it's worth kind of keeping an eye on it. Um, you know, I think it's worth it's sort of worth tracking, and it, it's good to see PRA and FCA working properly together on something like this. Um, we saw uh, the FCA board minutes get released. Don't know if periodically. So we saw yeah. we saw. Uh, I think it happened just just before Christmas, didn't it? Although obviously we didn't see the minutes till later. The the um, the I guess the emergency board meeting to uh, commit to a consultation on a redress scheme for a uh, scheme arrangement for for the British Steel Pension Scheme. So this is this this is the FCA looking at what they can do in an organised uh, way across. The industry to to review um, and I guess redress British Steel Pension Scheme pension transfers. Um, so uh, yeah, by the end of Q1, we expect to see a consultation. I guess my, my reading of those board minutes seemed to be that that we need to get this announcement out quickly because the politicians <laughs> are telling us to get on with it. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I guess we, we we wait and see see what the actual consultation consultation is. I know we, we talked before about different different approaches to schemes of this kind. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, and I think, you know, pensions is a bit of a running sore and has been since the pension freedom regulations in 2015. And um, the FCA keeps trying to close it off um, and uh, and it refuses to let that happen. So so I, I think this is this is carrying on for a while. And I do I do worry. It's another one of those things that, you know, won't be on the um, the formal agenda is taking up much time, but you know it'll take up board time. It'll take up exco time. Formal redress schemes are hard to set up. Yeah. Um, you know the the lawyers will be all over it and so on and so forth. So it's it's another one of those sort of extraneous things that will sort of land in the middle of yeah. people's workloads. Uh, I agree with that. It will be a very significant um, a, a burden. I think on whoever in the FCA is tasked with moving this forward. I, and it's really important because it's a really it's a it's a critical area of of regulation and becoming more so because of how much of people's overall lifetime wealth is is kind of sat in you know sat in their pensions and because it's split between responsibility split between you know the pensions regular the FCA and the, and DWP it's it it's not an easy picture to to kind of get your arms around. Um, Generally, it's so. Yeah, I, I think there'll be, unfortunately, more in this space. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, as they're right about the timings, we'll, we will be talking about the actual consultation shortly. Um, hey, I know you were looking at the uh, and the answer they say published information on their their internal implementation of the senior managers regime, don't they? So, yeah, accountability, responsibility maps, etc., uh, individual accountabilities. Um, I know you, you you take a look at that. You've taken a look at that the last the last few years, and it, it, things do move around a bit. What what's your view on the current sort of wholesale re retail split, and how that's divvied up in the in the sort of main policy um, supervision division? So, so my my starting point, I guess, is that the regulator in my well. So since since the FSA was formed, I don't think it's ever had a structure that is amenable to an SMCR um, sort of apportionment of accountability. It's always been actually a pretty complex matrix, um, and 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 some you know the, the the sort of SMCR idea that kind of one person can be accountable for a, a significant chunk of activities and functions. Um, and just pull stuff in doesn't has never in my experience worked well in the FSA or the or still less the FCA. Um, the current structure, the structure they they seem to be moving into, looks simpler um, than the one before. Uh, primarily because they've got policy and comp and policy and competition together with um, supervision. So you've got a, a kind of a sort of more of a sectoral division. With the different functions applying to each sector in the same place, yeah. as opposed to kind of, you know, in completely different silos. Yeah. Um, but, but there's still all sorts of questions about where retail ends and wholesale begins. Um, there are all sorts of issues around financial services groups that have um, that have individual entities on on both sides. I mean, the classic one going back was when the FSA had a wholesale retail split, and you because it was a UK firm and had millions of retail um, 
customers. Barclays was on the retail side, mm. which meant that Barcap was looked at separately from all the other investment banks. Mm. Um, which, which you know, th there were other examples, that, but that's probably the, but yeah. that's probably that's the most high profile one. And there'll still be lots of those going on. So how you do group supervision when you have entities either side of the divide and who actually calls the shots is something that actually they still have to work out. Yeah. Um, and there are ways of doing it, but but you need to emphasize the sort of how, how do you build the bridges across rather than what's either side. Yes. You know, they're both as important as each other, and people tend to emphasize the latter and forget the former. Yes, it is interesting that, yeah, in your view, the uh, you know the FCA itself is 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 an organisation that's it's extremely hard to map to a senior manager's regime type view of accountabilities, um, uh, which is uh, it, it, obviously they, they, they would they would expect any any regulated firm to be able to. <laughs> to do that without um without the same challenges um we um a couple of quick hits before we wind up what one is uh well both, both both papers that the fca produced one's a guidance consultation on um uh court schemes of arrangement so this is where firms that are uh, in financial difficulties seek to reach a, a, an agreed scheme with their with their creditors which in some cases for instance in consumer finance we've seen a few examples of this where it's, it's, some of their some of their creditors are, 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 are customers former customers to whom they owe redress um and in those situations uh, the fca as, as, as one of the interested parties gets to gets to write to the court or submit to the court you know a view on whether they think the scheme of arrangement is something they they, they would object to or not and there were one or two, you know, relatively high-profile examples uh, last year of them of them of writing to object. Um, so they've published a guidance consultation setting out what what they would expect um, and and how they would go about deciding whether they're going to object or not. I have to say, um, it's worth a read if you if you if you obviously think you might be in the in the ballpark of a scheme of arrangement. Um, basically, it consists of uh, you know a very large amount of financial data on both on the firm, on its directors, on its uh, on information around its customers and creditors um, to be submitted to the FCA. It is very, very detailed in that respect, following information quite light in terms of what the FCA is going to do with it. The FCA talks about, you know, the FCA will want to satisfy them the scale self that the scheme provides the quote best outcome possible for customers doesn't really say you know how they will go about making that assessment um or what factors would, would, would drive that assessment so it's probably going to be a bit, bit, bit of a, a bit opaque in that respect um although one of the one of the things the paper the guidance consultation makes clear is they want to see different options they want to see different scenarios in that information so maybe maybe they'll be able to get form of view on what what the least bad option is uh for, for customers um the other, the other one is a, is, a, is an occasional paper. Oh, sorry, Gavin, do you want to? Start? I was going to say ju just on that. I think part of part of the the, the quite general approach, broad approach you, you you described is because there's a there's too small a subset of examples for them to be. I, I think I think they're right here for them for them to feel confident enough to set out this is these are the criteria, yeah. and I think as that as a as the kind of the case law on this. Um, grows over the years, you, you, will, you will see more in that space. 
good point. Um, but but I think they're quite right to say actually we're going to look at this case by case essentially. Good point. Um, the other the other one which is, this is uh, the other one I'm, paper I wanted to mention is an occasional paper. So this is this is not consultation. This is not rulemaking. This is just um, research essentially. Um, this one's called Beyond, Beyond Disclosure for High Risk Investment Slow Down and Think, which um, which I found a fascinating read. Um, interesting. One of my takeaways from that is is that uh, you basically was comparing um, different mechanisms in the buying process to uh, make people investors potential investors better understand what they were getting into, better understand the risks, make better decisions. Um, it, it, there was a a very strong difference between you know the effect that risk warnings might have. You know, Slap it at the top of the web page, big red flashing lights. You might lose all your money. That 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 obviously had a measurable effect on on investment decisions, but not nearly as much as just making the actual applicate the application process, investment process, clunky and time consuming, and having to answer lots and lots of questions. So, so, so actually, the biggest dropout rate, unsurprisingly, was caused by you know grit in the grit in the application process the difficulty of the application process rather than sort of clarity of disclosures um which 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 is probably understandable actually thinking about it um I, and I, but i do wonder whether you know is it would that in some way potentially influence future rulemaking particularly in the where we have well, a sort of high risk consumer investment strategy yeah so i mean i think, I think the short answer is it, it ought to um it's actually quite a tortuous route for something like a research for a researching article like that to make its way into frontline policy. Um, but it's worth saying that actually the regulator has been trying to go quote unquote beyond disclosure since the at least the mid 2000s and and is still trying. So this is a there's a lot of retread in yeah. here. Um, and my I started doing um, looking after the kind of the consumer department, consumer facing department and the FSA in the, its last couple of years. And the discussions I had with consumer organizations really make, gave me quite a jaundiced view about the effectiveness of disclosure as a regulatory tool. Um, so so I'm, I'm, I'm a complete convert to the need to go beyond disclosure. I think what you do instead, or as well as, is, is a much more difficult question. Well, I, I, I look forward to the uh, 174 point sales process that uh, that might uh, become necessary <laughs> one day. Um, Gavin, thank you very much. Uh, I'll bring it to a close there for this month. Uh, we'll obviously reconvene uh, in a month or so. Um, for uh, any listeners that are interested in our regulatory handbook, the Grant on Regulatory Handbook is recently updated and is available on our website. Gives you a uh, Gives you a in one place view of all of the regulatory change and regulatory initiatives that are on the on the cards. Um, happy birthday, Gavin! Thank you. Um, enjoy those chocolate covered <laughs> three gridded tea, chocolate, <laughs> chocolate covered nuts. Um, and I look forward to speaking to you next month. All right, cheers, David. <laughs>